when you get what you want in your struggle for wealth and the world makes you king for a day. Then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that guy or gal has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or spouse whose judgment you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the guy staring back from the glass. I once heard Mark Dever share this poem and was struck at how sadly accurate this poem has become a mantra, a creed for our day. The belief that what matters most is what I think or how I feel or the most important approval is my very own. Well, we might not like the idea that there is one whose verdict is more important than the one from the man staring back from the glass. It is emphatically true. We stand to remember in our day that just because something is unpopular does not mean that it's untrue. And the prophet Zephaniah warned the people of God about the coming judgment of God. This coming judgment would be encapsulated in what Zephaniah refers to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord would be marked by white-hot, intense judgment against all sin and sinners. And in particular, Zephaniah warns God's people. God's people who would have assumed that because they were God's people, they were exempt from God's judgment. And he warned them that no one would hide from the gaze of this all-consuming, holy God. Zephaniah warns and reminds the people of God that there is indeed one whose verdict counts more than the approval of the one staring back from the glass. And that one is God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who has been and who is and who always will be. This covenant faithful God who made a people from among a people who, weren't, who were once not a people. They didn't deserve to be his people. They didn't do anything to earn or merit being his people. And Zephaniah's prophecy began by saying that all of the earth would be judged, and that would include this double-minded people who tried to approach worship and approach God as though he was, some, he was a part of a buffet of sorts. I can take a little bit of the God of Israel here, and I can take a little bit of Baal and Milcom, and I can take a, and, and it was just this buffet approach, this hodgepodge, I will pick and I will choose. And then in chapter two, we learned of God's terrifying judgment against the godless nations that opposed God and his people. And the picture that begins to emerge is that if the whole earth is, is guilty and that his people are guilty and that the nations are guilty, there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. And yet at the beginning of Zephaniah chapter 2, we see this glimmer of hope that just maybe if there is a repentance, just maybe if there is a turning, just maybe if we would seek the Lord, seek righteousness, and seek humility, just maybe there would be a refuge on that day where we wouldn't be consumed by his judgment, but we would know something of his love. 
And then the first part of chapter 3 spelled out in detail the reasons for God's righteous judgments against his people. I mean, there is just a brief invitation of repentance and a call to repent. There is a small glimmer of hope about the nations that would worship God. And that, those are the only two rays of light that we see in this most intense and dark judgment. The book of Zephaniah punches way above its weight class. And all along the book of Zephaniah, the prophet raised up, giving this prophecy for one reason. What is the reason? Because he is pleading with his people. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. In light of his coming judgments, seek the Lord. The terrifying tsunami of judgment is coming. Seek the Lord. And then we get to our passage this morning. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And what we find is that this coming day of the Lord is not merely, not only going to be marked by white, hot, intense judgment against sin, but it's also going to be marked by an unspeakably, an overwhelming, an all-inducing salvation that he gives his people. God gives salvation not only as an escape of judgment, but what we will find this morning is God gives salvation also as an entrance to joy. And that's why he's pleading with the people, seek the Lord. And this is where our passage picks up. The only thing more awe-inducing, the only thing more scandalous, the only thing more heart-pounding than the wrath of God that we've seen thus far is his gracious salvation. Think about that. The only thing that's, that can produce more awe, the only thing that can make your heart beat louder, the only thing that's more scandalous than his wrath is his salvation. And if we understand this rightly... We will be overwhelmed by the sheer ferocity of his mercy and his salvation and his love. There is a glorious future for those who have taken refuge in God and in what he's provided on the day of the Lord. And the aim for the original hearers was that they would hear this and they would seek the Lord. And that's our aim this morning. And there's not... The most well-crafted sermon can't manufacture that. We are in desperate need of the Spirit to help us. And so would you pray as we approach Zephaniah 3. Our holy God, we come before you yet again, uh, confessing our need, recognizing that though infinitely great is our need, all the greater is your provision. And so as we open your word this morning, I am well aware of the intense struggle that many people will face. They will hear about your overwhelming love for them and they will think, I'm not worthy. God, would you buy your mercies and through your spirit, would you help us to receive and believe this truth? Help our unbelief, we pray. And so we are needing to behold Christ. And so I pray that you would grant a lot of grace to that end. And to that end, I pray that the sermon that is heard would be more, far more effective than the one that is preached. And it's easy at this point to say that phrase, 
and to forget its weight. I am pleading with you. Allow your spirit to do a greater work in the hearts of the listener this morning. We pray for your glory. Amen. If you open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll jump in this morning. In many ways, I felt all week like I've been going to uh, this unceasing, this unending well, scooping up water, and just thinking in my mind, I've got to run, and I've got to just show the church this morning this glorious water that I have found. And yet what I've found is that between wherever the fountain is and standing here this morning, I've just leaked everywhere, and I don't have a lot to show you. And so uh, this morning, I just want to grab your hand, and I just want to take you to the shoreline with me. Because this passage is meant to take our breath away. Verse 8 is a summons to wait on the day of the Lord. And wait, as we talked about last week, doesn't mean sort of passively sitting, sort of like we're waiting on a bus to come pick us up. No, it means we're actively preparing, and we are ready for the day of the Lord. We're living each day so that we get to the end of the day, and we say, I have no regret. By his grace, I mean, I've done everything well, but I am, I'm seeking to honor the Lord. I am seeking to pour out my life in a way that he would receive glory and that I would be able to enjoy him. And then in nothing short of a torrential downfall of glorious streams of God's mercy, Zephaniah gives us uh, verses 9 through 20. And there are a host of ways we could break this up. Uh, I have decided to go with the cumbersome way of breaking it up by giving us seven draw-dropping jaw. I, not draw. Jaw-dropping <laughs> truths. Seven jaw-dropping truths of God's salvation that will be found on this great day of the Lord. And uh, I recognize that we could have done a sermon series and hit each one of these. And so the aim this morning is not to exhaust. The aim this morning is to introduce and to hopefully allow the beauty of this truth to just arrest your soul. Uh, by the grace of God, my soul has been arrested this week. So, friends, drink deeply of these glorious truths about our merciful and gracious God. First truth that we will see about the salvation that's coming on that great day. Number one, God will restore his people. God will restore his people. And each one of these points, it would be easy for them just to be black and white point that you write. Think about how undeserving these people are. Think about how undeserving you are. And yet in great grace, salvation would find you. On that day, God will restore his people. See this in verses 9 and 10. He is addressing a people whose lips had disqualified them from serving the Lord, much like what we find in Isaiah chapter 6. Before the holy God, Isaiah is aware of just how defiled he is because of his lips, because of his speech. And in a surprising turn of events, what we find is not that God is going to give his people what they rightly deserve because of that, those impure lips. He's going to restore pure speech to the peoples. Why? He's going to give them what they don't have so they can give God what he's deserving of. 
And in giving God what he's deserving of for the first time ever, they're able to have joy. Joy that this world can't satisfy. Joy that this world cannot bring. God will restore pure speech to the peoples so that they can call on him and so that they can serve him. From all peoples across the nations, his dispersed people will come together and give their offerings to the Lord. So this idea of purifying speech, it doesn't mean that they're going to stop cussing one day. No, it means that they are cleansed. The purification there envisions a repentance that's being accomplished in the hearts of the people of God. Purification implies that there's this overturning of judgment. And many commentators, it's been pretty sweet this week just to think about what happened at the Tower of Babel where there was this confusion of language and this scattering of people. And what we see here on this coming day of the Lord, this salvation is going to be a purification of all of the speech and a coming back together. It's almost a reversal of the, the tower. God pours out his grace in purifying lips And the response to that grace is seen in calling on his name. And here's the thing. You may be thinking, that that sounds really, really good. God pours out grace, but you don't understand just how much grace I need. And friend, I may not understand just how much grace you need. But friend, I can promise you that there is a God who has more than enough grace that you need. And he restores his people. They respond not only in calling on his name, but also in serving him. And what we find is that these people are given salvation. They're, giving, they're given restoration. Why? So that they can worship, so they can call and praise, and so they can serve. They're, they're redeemed and restored so that they can worship the God they were created to enjoy. And friends... If you are a follower of Jesus, so too are you. That's why you have been restored and redeemed. God changes our hearts so that we no longer oppose him. And the culmination of God being gracious to his people is that they would worship him. And you and I have that privilege each morning, each afternoon, each evening, and all of the time in between. You have been restored. By your God, mercifully, so that you would be able to worship your God endlessly. And every one of us in this room are all stained by this sin. We are all in need of being restored. We are all separated, and our relationship with God, it's, it's completely broken. And there's something that you will find about most people all across the world that they will readily confess and all people that they wrestle with at a deep foundational level. And that is this sense of just not feeling good enough, feeling at some level dirty, stained, as though I will never be able to measure up and particularly I could never get to God. That's why many in our day avoid church. It's why many in our day avoid conversations about God. It's as if someone showed up to your house and said that the most extravagant, lavish wedding is taking place and you are invited, but you have to come now. And we all have this sense of like, I just mowed the yard. 
Like, I, no, I, these are my mowing shoes, and I don't smell good. Like, I can't show up like that. And there's something that each one of us have that's similar as we think about how we relate to God. There's no way in the world I can show up. There's no way in the world he would want me. There's no way in the world I could stand before him. And the message of Christianity is not, ah, come on in anyway, it's no big deal. No, the message of Christianity is you are far more stained and smelly than you can ever imagine. In fact, you're not just dirty, you're dead. You're dead. And what you're in need of is not merely some shower to make you clean. You're in need of a surgeon to give you life. And praise be to God that a people who were once far off from God because of their sin, because of the gracious act of the Father sending the Son, and because of the the exemplary work of the Son, and going through life without sin, meriting righteousness at every turn, and then getting to the end of his life and hanging upon a cross, being a curse, enduring wrath that he didn't deserve, and bearing sin that he didn't commit. Why? Because of his great love. Because of his willingness to make a, res- a rebellious people restored. Jesus was overcoming everything that stands in between your way of getting back to God. And he did that in his life, and he did that on the cross. And friends, your life hinges on what you do with Jesus. Whether or not you will be restored to him has everything to do with how you answer the question, do you trust in him? Will you submit to him? And the good news this morning is that if you turn from your sin and place your faith in that finished work of Christ, you too can be restored, friend. And everything else we're going to talk about this morning can be true of you. It's not just having judgment removed. This is entrance to joy. And this is what Jesus has done. He's made really rotten people whole. He's made guilty people acquitted. And he's made a way for us to rid ourselves of our impurity. And the Bible says today would be the day that that happens. Because you're not promised even the next four hours. Friends, you will not find a more violent flowing stream of mercy and goodness and grace anywhere else in this world. I plead with you this morning, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. And it would be the joy of any person in this room to talk to you about what that means further. At the end of our service, at the reception, uh, afterwards, at the information table, just pull anyone aside and say, I want to be restored to the God who I am accountable to. And it would be our joy to talk you through what this looks like. And this is also a message for Christians because we can say, I I know that he died, but yet I'm not sold out because I still just don't feel really clean. Christian friends, everything that was in your way Everything that was against you to keep you from Christ has been defeated by Christ. So seek him. On this day, 
there will be a restoration of his people. Second glorious truth of God's salvation is that God will remove his people's shame. God will remove his people's shame. We see this in verse 11. You see, God's people earned that badge of shame. It's not merely that somehow they were walking and kind of like a briar, it stuck to them. They didn't know how it got there. No, they earned it. They deserve to be shamed before a holy God. And each one of us have received this sin nature passed down from one generation to another. Romans 5, 12. Just as therefore through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Every one of us have earned shame. And you know what we do in our shame? It's what we see Adam and Eve doing in their shame in the garden. We run and we hide. We think, though, as, we think as though all we have to do is find a space where he can't see, and we can sort of either grow accustomed to our shame or try to work off our shame so that we can then go before him. And in love, he doesn't allow us to stay there. No, he comes calling. And out of our shame, he invites us to come to him. And for a sinful people, in their sinful shame, that's not comforting to know that God Almighty is calling you in front of him. And then we remember, no, 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 no. But he's made provision so that the shameful can stand before God and feel accepted and loved. And friends, some of you, some of you, that is the furthest thought that you have about God is that somehow you in all of your filth and all of your secret struggles could stand before God and feel loved and accepted. I just want you to know that if you are in Christ, your feelings don't win the day. If you are in Christ, you are accepted and loved in greater measures than you can even imagine. So friends, receive this this morning. It is possible to stand before the Lord and not feel shame in light of all of our deeds. God's people then and us today, we often feel embarrassed and defiled because of our sin or because of sin that's been committed against us. And the good news about this day of salvation, that is if you and I will take refuge in God through Christ Shame will not have the final word. It doesn't. Think about Jesus. Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He moves towards people who are constantly shamed, who feel a sense of inadequacy and a a sense of, I'm not worthy. And Jesus moves to them, and in a day where if you moved too close or you touched, what would happen is that you would become defiled. And that's not what we find in Jesus. Jesus moves in, and he touches, and he heals, and he comes close, and Jesus isn't defiled because of that connection. In fact, the opposite happens. They are cleansed and healed and restored because of him. And this is what Christ promises to do for all who trust in him. And we see this most clearly in the cross. Jesus identified with the shameful. How? By suffering the most humiliating death. And so anytime you're tempted to bow your head in shame because you think, oh man, I've really blown it. Remember, he endured your scorn and your shame by hanging naked on a cross. All of the shame that he endured by those that were passing by, 
He endured that shame so that you and I would be free from it in Christ. In Isaiah 53, this prophecy of of the, the suffering servant who would come, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising its shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? In some measure, that joy was changing shame, removing shame. All of us have caused shame in someone else's life or we experience, because, we experience it because of someone else. And it took the greater second Adam Jesus, to go into our shame, to take our nakedness, as it were, upon himself, and to die upon the cross, to bear our shame. And friends, that's why we can have no fear. The greatest fear that we ought ever have is the fear of God's judgment, and that causes each one of us to hang our heads low in shame. And Psalm 3 reminds us that we have a lifter of our heads who has endured our shame and says, run to me, find refuge in me, and I will remove your shame. And this is what I I am well aware that because I'm just saying this, shame does not die easily. And I know many in this room wrestle with this. You can't wish shame away. You can't just think happy thoughts and replace and sort of move on from shame. Now, we need to know that there's someone who's in the middle of it with us and who's able, who's strong enough to endure it all when we are weak and we're ready to just collapse under its weight. And praise be to God, there is one who has endured it all and who says, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's lose the shame. I'll gladly bear it. I'll gladly bear your shame so that you can know love and acceptance. That's why we don't have to ever be afraid. Third truth of God's stunning salvation. God will be a refuge for his people. God will be a refuge for his people. We see this in verse 12. Not only will God remove the proud and the arrogant, but he will leave a remnant, a small remaining of the humble and the lowly. And because they are lowly and humble, they are able to take refuge in the cleft that is the Lord. And so instead of cowering before him as judge, his people can now rest in his care as refuge. This is what the psalmist talks about in Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. When God is our refuge, it positions us to face whatever may come our way with confidence and with peace and with resolve. It doesn't mean that whatever comes our way is easy. And that we'll be able to navigate it through it well, or through it easily, as though it's not really a big deal. No, I understand that what comes our way is often a really big deal. But our really big deals, it, they're not bigger than the refuge that is found 
in the Lord. This is a major distinctive of the people, a distinctive of the people of God. Their ability to trust in the Lord when the world seems to be crashing all around them. How can they do that? Because though the world is crashing all around them, they know that they are safe because they found a refuge under the care of Christ. God sent his son to die on the cross and raised him from the dead so that by faith your sins could be forgiven. That's the cleft. That's the refuge. So trust in Christ, friends. Run to him. That's what Zephaniah was saying. Run to the refuge of Christ to get out from the storm of his judgment and his wrath. And for those who do follow Christ, this helps us better understand the glorious work of Christ. Christ came to save sinners. And we can rejoice as those sinners who have been saved because he is our refuge. Fourth reality of God's overwhelming salvation. God will give his people rest. God will give his people rest. I didn't try to alliterate these, but most of them have an R in them. And so if you are a note taker, you can just underline the R. God will give his people rest. Not only does God promise refuge from his wrath, but he promises rest for our souls. We see this in verse 13. And let's just call it what it is. For those of us whose souls are whose soul is bogged down and marred with sin, we're unfamiliar with this. I'm not saying can you sleep at night. Common grace, most people sleep every night. I'm saying, do you know true rest? Not do you know an absence of conflict or kind of a reprieve from hard circumstances. I'm, I'm asking, do you know true rest? True rest and true peace isn't re- merely removal of chaos. True rest and true peace is able to get through the end of my day when clamoring has been happened for my worship and for uh, the approval of others. Who am I going to give that approval to? True rest is when you're able to say, all of this means nothing. When I think about the approval of one. And I'm able to rest in who I am. And I'm able to rest from what people think. That doesn't give me license to be a jerk or to be rude. But I'm not held sway by the opinion and the approval of others. I am able to rest. Why? What provides that level of rest? What's well, not favorable circumstances? It's removal of my sin. And because my sin is removed, you know what that means? It means I'm no longer an enemy, but now I'm a son or a daughter of the king. If I'm a son and the daughter of the king, right, you know some of these people. You grew up with some people that, whose parents were privileged people, and you just hang out with them. You're like, how in the world can they do that? And I can't do that. They were covered by the, by the privilege of being a son or a daughter. True peace 
is the removal of sin. Think about that day when there's no more wrongdoing. I mean, just allow your heart to consider the glories of the salvation that is coming. No more wrongdoing, no more lies, no more injustice, no more deceit. Everything marked by peace. It's what the transfer of righteousness of 2 Corinthians 5.21 provides. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Having that transfer of righteousness on us and having that approval of the Father on us frees us. We're able to rest. We don't have to work. This is what the psalmist conveys in Psalm 23. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He talks about how the shepherd takes him and nourishes and sustains and feeds and and also, because of his care, provides rest in pastures of plenty. God's people are able to seek refuge, and because they have refuge, they're able to find rest in the character of God, in the power of God, and in the promises of God. And when we find rest, we are able to flee from sin. Like sheep under the care of a good shepherd, the remnant of God's people on that day of salvation will enjoy provision and protection and they will know rest. And it brings us to our fifth staggering truth of God's salvation. Number five, God will remove his judgments against his people. We see this in verses 14 and 15. God will remove his judgments against his people. The commands in verse 14 are given because of the truths found in verse 15. The commands to shout and to rejoice and to exult. Why? Why do we do that? Verse 15. Because the Lord has taken away his judgments against us. He's cleared away enemies. He is in our midst. And so we don't have to fear disaster anymore. Every one of those commands are rooted in joy because every one of those commands are rooted in a joy-producing, covenant-keeping God. There is much celebration in light of this good news of undeserving grace. This defiled city and nation is being raised up and they're, they're now being called the beloved daughter of Zion. They don't deserve this. Their punishment has been removed. Their enemies have turned back. And the king is among them. This is such a contrast to what we read in verse 8. Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger. Here, Zephaniah is pointing people to the, to, to the day when all of their sins as well as all of the condemnation and judgment that is due them will be taken away. And that's not because on this day that all of a sudden the Father isn't going to take sin seriously. No, it's because on that day 
in a measure of showing just how serious he's taken sin, all who take refuge in his son, who he put forth as a covering. His wrath has been absorbed, exhausted, drunk down to the last drop. None left for people who take refuge in him. Uh, Friends, what could possibly be better than having your infinite debt against a holy God removed. Some of you would flip if you found out that whatever monetary debt you have today, if that was just sort of taken care of, some of you would do crazy things as an act of celebration. How much more I'm less concerned about the crazy act of celebration, more concerned about the heart that's arrested and the tsunami of worship that wells up within us when we think, oh, oh, the love of Jesus. What kind of God loves like this? Zephaniah points them to the day when their enemies will be taken away and God will be in their midst. God will be in their midst. The last thing that they deserve was for God to be in their midst. Look at everlasting punishment through all of eternity called hell, and what do we find? A removal of all of the sweetness of the presence of God and only experiencing his righteous hatred against sin. They use past tense in these verses to describe what will be a future certainty. On that day, the people of God will praise him perfectly and joyously without any pain, without any suffering. And the grounds for this rejoicing is the sovereign work of God on behalf of his people. Because of the coming work of Christ at the cross and in the empty tomb, judgments are removed from all who run and trust in God. Brings us to our sixth staggering truth of God's salvation. Number six, God will rejoice over his people. God will rejoice over his people, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, what we read is uh, the hand growing weak because of uh, being frightened. But because God is present and because God is in control, his people are going to find that they don't have weak hands anymore. They don't have weak hands. This previously weakened nation, now in the presence of the mighty one, God himself, who unlike human warriors and human heroes, God doesn't lose heart. And instead of fleeing from danger, God moves in and saves his people from danger. And it's as if this breathtaking uh, is it, it's as if the breathtaking beauty of this passage hasn't been clear enough. What happens in verse 17 is meant to just stop us. Whatever else you're going to do today, you will encounter nothing else as beautiful as the love of God for his people. We find that God is with them and that God is for them and that God celebrates over them. The Lord is a warrior. He's a warrior among them. And this warrior isn't attacking his people. This warrior shows up 
fighting for his people. He's fighting battles that they would not win. And he's pursuing as a warrior not to bring them down, but to raise them up and to cover them and to save them. He is a warrior, but he's also a loving father who is rejoicing over his children. You can't read verse 17 and just not be moved by the rejoicing and the gladness and the love and the delight and the joy. And what's astounding is that this is given to a people who have rejected God over and over and over and over again. What we, what we are reading is Luke 15, 20. The son is far off and he gets up and he comes to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. For a thousand years, the people of God have been running from him, and some have returned, and over each one who returns, God sings. He delights. And I get, some of you are thinking right now, if there's one thing about me I would never say is that my God would ever delight in me, so much so that he would sing over me. Your feelings don't win the day. Draw nearer to the heart of this God who doesn't just redeem a people to bring them in and then let them do what they... No, he brings them in and he delights intimately over them. So much so, he sings. Can you imagine what it's like to hear God sing? What? What would you hear? Better yet, what would you feel? to hear the voice of the majestic one, not merely hitting perfect notes, but man, coming from a place of deep affection for you. Like a groom gazing at his bride, he will roar forth in song. A song that will shake the fabric of reality. And rest assured that when God sings, nothing else, nothing else will be like it. And that song is an invitation for us to come into the joy of the triune Father. And that delight doesn't just turn on on that day. Friends, if you are in Christ, he delights in you. It doesn't matter what kind of relationships you have with parents, what kind of relationships you have with others. It doesn't matter how the church has burned you. If you are in Christ, he delights in you. In the ESV, in verse 17, it says that he will quiet you by his love. If you're reading out of the New American Standard, it says, he will be quiet in his love. One commentator, Oscar Robertson said, not Oscar Robertson, one commentator, uh, I have an O. Robertson. I don't know his first name. It may be Oscar. I think it's a basketball player. <laughs> one commentator, the last name of Robertson, 
And speaking about he will be quiet in his love, says the verb be quiet describes the inward condition of the subject of the verb. To be quiet is describing the inward condition of the subject of the verb. The subject of the verb is God. And so what we have is God Almighty sinking into contemplations of love over his once wretched people. How can the infinite God concentrate his whole love in the temporal creature of the dust? How could, he, how could the holy satisfy himself contentedly in the loving contemplation of the unholy? And that's precisely what God's word is declaring that he is doing. He is quieting as he's considering his love for his people. It's not the love that normally describes his covenant faithfulness to his people. It's the love that describes Jacob's love for Rachel that encouraged him to endure for seven more years. It's the love of of Jacob's particular, uh, particular affection for his son. It's Jonathan's deep affection and friendship with David. It's the love of the psalmist's delight in the law of the Lord. This moves from the sense of gladness over his people to quiet contemplation of his love for his people. How in the world can this be? Is this not the same God who earlier said, I will utterly sweep away all humanity? And it is. And it is. Because the only thing that rivals his holiness is his love. And friends, this morning, the invitation is to come to him, the God who is relentless in his holiness, unmoved in his holiness and relentless in his love. We see a picture of God quieting as he's thinking about his affection and his delight in his people, reminds us of Jesus going to trial, not saying a word, willing to endure the cross because of its shame. We remember the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. The quietness of the love of God speaks of the depth of his love, and the depth of his love cannot be constrained. And so it doesn't matter what your uh, relationship status on social media says, there is a love for you that's unmatched. It doesn't matter that you're in a marriage that's not exactly what you always hoped it would be, there is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe you've lost the love of your life and you feel incapable of picking up the pieces and moving on. There is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe you're still single and you thought that you should have found a spouse by now. And as the years go on, you wonder if you ever will. There is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe close friends have betrayed you and let you down and you feel all alone. There is a love for you that is unmatched. King Jesus has a love for you that is unmatched. And Matthew Henry said it best. God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. He loves to love you. You are loved by God. Romans 5.8. While yet in your sin, he loved you. Come to the wedding, lawnmower clothes and all, he loves you. And the cross, the cross stands at the central display of his love. 
The confirmation of his love for you is not in your current circumstances. It's in the surety of the work of the cross that will stand forever as a reminder. And so Christian friends, don't look at your trial. Don't look at your tragedies and don't question the love of God because of the thing. Instead, look to the cross and know the depths of his love for you. We have to get rid of this thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom as though Christ found some loophole in the law. No. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward to be the sacrifice. And when we trust in him, God welcomes us in. He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fattened calf. He throws a party. He shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation. And it all leads in exuberant worship. I was thinking this week, wait, but doesn't it belittle God if I'm supposed to delight in him? He stops delighting in himself and he starts delighting in me. We are not his God. He is his own God. In the same way, it doesn't belittle Michelangelo to rejoice with tears as he looks at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It does not belittle a holy God. When the divine work of our redemption is done and all the millions are gathered before his throne, the humble and the lowly, it does not belittle him at that point that he should break forth in singing and rejoice over you with all his heart and soul. soul. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded and staggered and speechless that he would sing over me. Go to any mosque today and ask them, does your God sing? And they'll say, nope, it's improper. Go to the Hindu temple. Does your God sing? No. Go to the secular altar of post-modernity. Does your God fate, happen, chance, karma, does it sing? No. The universe is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Do you see why the gospel is not just true, but it's beautiful? Because we are given access to a God who sings over his people. Friends, he sings over you if you are in Christ. And I would just mention the seventh. Jaw-dropping, stunning aspect of this salvation. God will reward his people. Verses 18 through 20. God will, will reward. On this day, God is going to make every right wrong. Every taunt, every reviling will be praised and turned to renown on that day. Those who were abused and defeated will be, will be victorious on that day. Those who were humble and lowly on this earth will be lifted up on that day. Truly, the last shall be first. And what we get rewarded with ultimately is not merely forgiveness of sins. No, what we get rewarded with ultimately is God himself. It would be a crazy tease to speak of this God who loves like this and then say, you can get in and you can just sort of see his throne from a far distance. It's an unfathomable privilege to say, no, not only do you get in, but you get him. You get him. You get God. 
You don't work to get him. You get God because God first got you. By grace, through faith. And God will restore, he will regather, bring them back, pursue those who've attacked his children, vanquish them, get rid of them. He takes what's been broken and restores it. He takes what's been shamed and restores it. He gathers all of his people to his kingdom, gives them places of honor and distinction. This is the God who loves. This is the God who will judge on that day. I'm helped by what John Piper has written. He says, can you feel the wonder of all of this today? That God is rejoicing with you. God is rejoicing over you with loud singing. And you're, you're prone to think, no, 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 I'm too guilty. No, you're prone to say, I'm too guilty that God should rejoice over me. But will you not believe, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Can you not then feel the wonder that the Lord exalts over you with loud singing today? No, 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 you say, I can't because I'm surrounded by enemies and obstacles beset me on every side. I am suffering and it's, it's too much. Will you not believe, verse 17, the Lord is a warrior who gives victory. And verse 19, behold, at the time, I will deal with your oppressors. And verse 15, has he not cast out your enemies? Can you not then feel the wonder that the Lord exalts over you with loud singing? No, you say. Still, I can't because he is great and holy and I feel like he's far away from me. Will you not believe the promise of verse 15? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. Friends, he is not too far away from you. Can you not then feel the wonder that the Lord exalts over you with loud singing? Still, you say, no, I can't because I'm enslaved to shame. I've been endlessly belittled by my parents. I've been scoffed at and threatened and manipulated and slandered. And inside this cocoon of shame, even the singing of God sounds faint and far away. But again, I will ask you, will you not believe the promise at the end of verse 19? I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Can you not then feel the wonder that the Lord exalts over you with loud singing? Friends, put aside all pride and boasting in yourself today. Take refuge in God. Bank your hope on the righteousness of Christ and not your own. Let yourself awaken to the wonder that the Lord, the King of kings, rejoices over you with gladness and he exalts over you with loud singing. Oh, friends, he is worth living for. Don't play games. For my non-Christian friends, why in the world, where in the world would you find anyone who will love you like this? Church, let's, let's flee. Let's flee our sin. And let's run to this God who makes this provision possible because of his son, Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our holy God, your word, uh, in many ways, I, I feel that uh, your word could have run. I trust that it does run 
faster and farther than, than I can make it. I just pray that you've used the last few minutes to provide clarity. Would you allow your word that has run to now become effective in our hearts? God, I pray that because of the last few minutes together, we have grown in our love for you. And I pray that we have become more convinced than ever of your love for us. And so would you take this moment of silence as we think about what response looks like and would you speak to us? Speak now, please, Spirit, speak. Your servants are listening.